It's good to see you here today. I want to encourage you to uh, have your Bibles ready, and if you've not already done so, if you'll take a look inside your worship folder, there's a listening guide. We have been studying for several weeks about relationships, and we've been learning what the Bible has to say about the most difficult kinds of relationships. If we can learn to manage those, we can learn better how to live in our day-to-day ordinary relationships. And so that listening guide will help you capture some of the main ideas of what we're studying, something that you can use later during the week to go deeper in your study or to help someone that you know that might benefit from this study of God's Word. Today, we're looking at this topic, when you can't say no. When you can't say no. Anybody here have that problem? You don't have to raise your hand, but that's good. I'm glad you did. You know that you struggle with that, and you may know someone who didn't raise their hand, and, um, and you may be thinking, boy, I'm so glad they're here today, uh, or you may be thinking, I'm glad I'm here, when you can't say no. I promise you, if you and I were to go back to the nursery right now, we would be seeing a scene that plays out in church nurseries all over the world where you have two toddlers who are learning to do a relationship with one another. One of them will typically be dominant. Let's do it this way. The other one will be more compliant. Okay. And, and we watch them do that, and we see the interaction. We might look at the, the one who has the ideas and who always is taking the lead as a future leader, or maybe they're the one who's being bossy, whatever the case may be. We look at the kids, and it's cute. And we think, oh, that's really cute. But if they're still doing that 20 years from now, not so cute. And we find ourselves sometimes in relationships where we give and give and give and give. Where we take and take and take and take and take. And we know that something is wrong, something is out of balance. But we're not quite able to put our finger on it. I want you to know this morning that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so that you could remain in bondage. He died to set us free from sin's power, from the penalty of sin, but he also died to set you and I free from the expectations that other people have for us. We're to live according to his rule and not the rule of others. In the book of Galatians, we have a situation where a group of new Christians, many of them Gentile Christians who didn't grow up Jewish and who did not know anything about the Jewish rules and laws were suddenly being affected by a group that had come from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians. And they were beginning to tell these young Christians, you have to live this way. These are the things you must do to be right with God, to be a a full-blown Christian, to be at the right level, to have all that God intends for you. You need to keep these Jewish dietary rules. You need to observe these Jewish holy days. You need, if you're men, you need to be circumcised to identify with the people of Israel. And some of the people were beginning to believe it. Paul wrote the letter of Galatians to say, no, you don't have to live under their expectations. In fact, in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul writes, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And so if you're a person today who's living your life according to the expectations of another, 
I want you to know Jesus wants to set you free from that. And I want us, because this is so serious, and it's something that happens too often, particularly in churches, I want us to pray again about that this morning. And I want to ask for the Lord's help. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your word speaks to us at the level of our greatest need. And so, Father, we do ask that you would be here with us today. Lord Jesus, that you would walk among us and that you would come alongside that individual who is struggling with this very thing today. As you walked the earth before, we pray that you would walk again this morning. That everywhere you went, you encountered people who were hurting, who needed relief from God, people who were disoriented, who needed direction from God. And we're no different today. And so we ask that through your spirit, you would fill this place. Take your word and apply it to our hearts. And we want to listen and we want to be receptive and we want to be responsive. We want to set our hearts to apply the truth. But Father, we are limited and we are flesh. And where our efforts stop, we pray in a way that goes beyond our reason and beyond our understanding that your Holy Spirit would come and heal our heart. Fill our minds with truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage in Galatians, people were trying to tell others how to live. And we experience that today. And and there are two common ways in which you and I can fall into a kind of bondage where we are living our lives out according to the desires or expectations of others. A relationship becomes a form of bondage when you have first someone you're always trying to rescue. Someone you're always trying to rescue. Uh, For the last few days and for a couple more days, our grandson has been visiting in Wynn. And uh, he he has had a wonderful time. And he has worn his papa out. He is nonstop. And so when he is hungry, he comes and he wants me to make that go away. When he's lonely, he comes to me. He wants me to make that go away. When he's bored, he comes to me. He wants me to make that go away. And I do. But as we saw with the toddlers in the nursery, if he's still doing that 20 years from now, something is terribly, terribly wrong. If he comes to me 20 years from now and says, Papa, I have a substance abuse problem. I don't plan on quitting, but I need you to bail me out. I need you to take care of me. I need you to fix the problems that I have created. Well, then I've become easily, I can fall into a kind of bondage in that relationship. Someone might come and say, I've got financial problems, and I've lost my job again, and I need you to help me again. And this has happened repeatedly throughout the course of your relationship with that person, and they expect you to rescue them. Someone else might just simply come and say, I have lots and lots of problems, and I need you to solve all of them. And how do we get into that? How does someone fall into the trap of always trying to rescue someone? Well, one one way that happens, this is not true in every case, but one of the most common ways it happens is that you and I have a need to be needed. And that I find that if I meet someone's need, they love me. They respect me or they care for me more. And this is the way I get what I need, is by constantly meeting their needs. And that's not the way God intended those relationships to work. 
Sometimes it's as simple as misunderstanding the gospel and thinking that as believers, what we do is we say yes to everyone. We do what everyone asks us to do, when in fact, the gospel is very different. Moses is an example of this in the Old Testament. Moses, after Sinai, was extremely valued among the people of God for all the complaining that they did. They looked to him for guidance, and they looked for him to him for wisdom from God. And so he set up a decision booth, if you will, and people would line up, and he would listen to their hardest, most challenging, most complex problems, and he would give them wisdom from the Lord. In Exodus 18, his father-in-law visits him and calls this whole practice into question. In verse 14, he says, so when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning, before you, from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because people come to me to inquire of God. Now we're going to look at this again in just a moment, but at this moment in Moses' life, he felt he had to do it. He was the one, the only one, who could accomplish this task for all the people of Israel. And he was in a position of bondage trying to rescue these individuals. Well, there's another way it happens to us. A relationship becomes a form of bondage when you have, secondly, someone who is always trying to control you. It's not you trying to rescue them. It's someone trying to control you. And there's, there's two primary methods that someone can do that to you. Both of them are forms of manipulation. The first one is manipulation through intimidation. They scare you. They create anxiety in you. They threaten you. And because you want to keep the peace, because you don't want to rock the boat, because you don't want to create difficulties or worse problems, then you acquiesce to what they want. Something similar to this happened in Galatians. The same circumstance where you have Gentile believers, and Peter was there with Paul at the same time. And Peter, understanding the nature of the gospel, that the gospel has set us free from the Old Testament dietary rules and from Jewish scruples, he would commonly eat with the Gentile Christians. A Jewish man eating with a Gentile was unheard of, was forbidden, was not socially correct in that day and time, but he understood the gospel, and he was eating with Gentiles. And then the Bible tells us some people came from Jerusalem, men from James, who was the leader of the church there. This is a Jewish church, and these men showed up, and listen to what happens, and listen to why it happened. Galatians 2.12, Paul writes, for before certain men came from James, he, Peter, would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came he withdrew and separated himself. Why? Fearing those who were of the circumcision. Was he intimidated? Was he under someone else's control? Was he doing what he knew the gospel dictated in that situation? Or was he doing what he thought they wanted him to do? And see, that's what happens to you and to me. Someone gets mad at you, and in order to keep peace, in order to keep down the thermostat, uh, 
you, uh, you, not just, you go beyond just speaking a soft word that turns away wrath. You just roll over. You do whatever they want. You appease whatever it takes. And, and that person is controlling your life. Now, when someone gets mad at you, one of the things you and I have to understand, when someone gets mad at you, you can have a problem at that moment because they're upset. And you have a problem. But just because you have a problem doesn't mean it was your fault. Just because they're angry doesn't mean you caused it. And sometimes when somebody gets into this trap, they're thinking every time someone gets upset with them, oh my goodness, what did I do? It's something I've done, something I've caused, some fault that I've created. If you're walking down the street and win on the sidewalk and someone loses control of their car, they're texting or whatever they're doing, they run up on the sidewalk, they hit you, knocks you into the ditch. You have a problem, right? You have a problem. You now have to go to the hospital. Uh, maybe you've broken some bones. You have to get those fixed. You're going through rehab. You have a problem, but it's not your fault. And one of the things you now have to do is learn to make that distinction. Yeah, I now I have difficulty. I have a, a person who's upset with me, but it's not necessarily something that you've caused. Manipulation through intimidation. There's another way that people control people. Manipulation through emotion. Through emotion. Uh, someone uses guilt to try to get you to do something. Someone uses shame to try to get you to do something. Someone uses insults to try to get a rise out of you to get you to do something. In the book of Judges, we have an incident in the life of Samson that illustrates this. Samson, you know, the strongest man in the Bible, was actually very weak in that anyone could control him if they knew what to do. And they had gone to the woman's home, to her village, to get married. And so he's there, and all the young men from the village are there. There's about 30 of them. And he decides to have a little wager, playing a young man's game. And he tells them a riddle. In the course of telling them the riddle, he says, look, if you can guess the riddle, I will give you 30 changes of clothes. Every guy here, I'll give you a new outfit. But if you can't guess the riddle, you have to get 30 changes of clothes for me. Well, they couldn't figure out the riddle, but they had, they had a method for getting the information that they wanted. In verse 16 of Judges 14, the Bible says, Then Samson's wife wept on him. You with me so far? Got that picture? And said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And so she, what's she doing? She's laying a guilt trip on him. She's trying to control him through guilt, through emotion. And this goes on for day one, day two, day three, day four. The Bible tells us in verse 17, and it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. And so she wore him down. And through that manipulation of emotion, she was able to get what she wanted from him. What's the solution to this? What's really a toxic combination is when you have two people where one is trying to rescue the other one at the same time that that one is trying to control the other. Psychologists call that codependence. And it's very difficult to address that 
But one of the things that has to happen in that kind of toxic relationship is that you have to reestablish the distinction between me and you. There has to be a boundary. You know the old saying that good fences make, wake up now, good neighbors. And uh, that's true in relationships. There has to be a distinction between you and the other person. And it's like establishing a fence, a property line, a boundary between yourself and that other person. Over 20 years ago, 1992, two psychologists wrote a book called Boundaries, Henry Cloud and John Townsend. It's a great book. I recommend it. I listed it at the bottom of your handout. Both of these men are believing men. They know the Lord. They love Jesus. And in writing this this book, they weren't thinking they were doing anything special. They were addressing a problem they saw repeatedly in relationships and their counseling. But when they wrote this book, it just exploded in popularity. They had touched a nerve, at least in American culture. And they've written other books, boundaries for people who are dating and boundaries between parents and children and, and parents who want to teach their children how to maintain proper boundaries. Because if you don't learn how to do this, it creates all kinds of difficulties in your life when you can't say no. So what we want to do this morning is not going to be solving every question that you have on this topic. And that's why I recommend sometimes additional reading or exploration on this, on this issue. But today I want to talk about first steps. If you believe that you're a person who's in a relationship where the boundaries are gone and your lives are so blended and entangled that you don't know how you're ever going to get free, here are some first steps to consider according to God's Word. Number one, discover a new way to love. One of the problems is that you think you're loving someone. In fact, you're not. The Bible teaches us what love is. We studied it last fall when we studied 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not giving in to whatever anybody wants. Love is not letting someone do whatever they want. Love is very, very different. In Exodus 18, verse 17, we're back to Moses again. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, here's Moses sitting, making all these decisions for all the people. And his father-in-law says to him, look at these words, the thing that you do is not good. See, Moses didn't believe that. At the moment that his father-in-law told him that, he didn't believe that sitting all day long, making decisions for everybody else, decisions they should make, decisions they should carry to the Lord, decisions that other people should be involved in, he didn't think anything was wrong with that. He thought it was good. He thought it was what he ought to do. And his father-in-law said it's not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. It's not good for you, Moses. It's not good for them. What's he saying? It's too much for Moses. And, and you need to think about that, perhaps, in the relationship that you're dealing with this now. You know, it's too much, insert your name. It's too much for Don. Too much for Tom. Too much for Kenny. Too much for Todd. And we have to come to a place where we realize that when I'm spending my life emptying all my resources and people are depending on me in that same way, always to have the answers to their need and to their problem, to their questions, that I've created a relationship that the father-in-law was absolutely right when he said it's not good. Why wasn't it good? 
because he wasn't meeting their need. And there were so many people involved that there were people waiting day after day after day, and their need wasn't being met. And sometimes when you and I think we're helping someone, we're actually sometimes contributing to their need, making it worse, creating a scenario that's impossible for them to get out of as well as for us. Feeling responsible for someone does not mean that you are responsible for them. Uh, Working for years in a business setting, it was not uncommon for people to walk into my office and say, Don, we have a problem. I always reserve judgment on that. And you need to do the same. Someone comes in and says, we have a problem. Well, you don't know it's your problem yet. And you need to reserve judgment on that. Maybe it's your problem. Maybe it's not your problem. But when you and I immediately say yes, and we enter into it, you may enter into a struggle that you're not ever intended to do so. That's not love. Love is not based on unhealthy motivations, damaged emotions. That's not love. Husbands, for example, are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Not the way someone else loved their wife. Not the way someone tells you you should love your wife. But God said in his word, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He is the definition for how we love someone else. In the most intimate of relationships, he is the definition for what love is at that moment. In Galatians 5.22 The Bible says, in discussing the fruit of the Spirit, the very first one, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And we read through that, and we cross-stitch it, we put it up on the wall, we hang posters up with that, this fruit of the Spirit is love, it sounds good. But listen, it's describing a dynamic that you and I need, that when you and I trust Christ, the Spirit of Christ comes to live in us. And he is the one who is able to love properly. I am corrupted by sin. I am damaged by sin. You and I have both been hurt in relationships. We've been hurt in our past. We can bring a lot of baggage to a a situation if we want to. We can bring a lot of that. But when I'm relying on the Spirit, when you're relying on him walking in his Spirit, being sensitive, Lord, how can I please you in this situation? What does your word say in this circumstance? And I want to step back, Lord, and I want you to love this person through me. And I want to do exactly what you lead me to do, because I know that's love. Whatever you're going to do in this moment, that is love. So I need to discover a new way to love. I may need to abandon every definition of love that I have ever thought I knew and set it aside and turn to God's Word again and say, Lord, teach me, show me how to love someone else. Secondly, a second step, not only do I need a new way to live, but if I'm going to establish a healthy boundary, secondly, accept that God did not make anyone to meet all the needs of another person. Do you believe that? Do you practice that? God didn't make anyone to meet all of the needs of another person. I want to give you a scenario. Man has a beautiful daughter. That daughter comes to him one day, tells, tells her dad those words that every father dreads. I have found the man I want to spend the rest of my life with. He says, what? He says, I need to meet this, this young man. 
And she says, Dad, I've already made an appointment. He'll be here at the house at 3 o'clock tomorrow. He says, okay, okay. So he starts thinking about it. He says, I, I got to, this is hard. I'm going to try to say the right things, do the right things. So I'm going to listen to this young man. I'm just going to ask questions. He's really thinking about this. Young man shows up at 3 o'clock. He's smiling. He uh, looks a little tattered, but that's okay. He's not passing judgment. He sits down with the young man. He says, well, I'm so thankful that you're here, that you came by today. I understand that you want to marry my daughter. He says, yes, I want to marry your daughter. And he says, well, her mother and I are very interested in who she marries, and so we, I got a few questions I want to ask you. And he says, first of all, tell me, tell me about your work. Tell me what you do. Tell me about your job. He says, I don't have a job. What do you mean you don't have a job? He says, I don't have a job. He says, are you looking for a job? No, I'm not looking for a job. He says, but listen, he says, God will provide. The father thought, God will provide. You know, that's really the hardest thing to answer when someone tells you that, when they pull out the God card, because you really, you don't have anything else to say. So he, so he comes up with another question, and he says, well, tell me, okay, you don't have a job. You obviously, you're dressed, you're, you're eating. Um, he said, tell me about your assets. Do you have like a big bank account? Did you have a trust fund? Did, did uh, someone die and leave you a bunch of money? He says, no. He, I, he said, do you have a checkbook? No, I don't have a checkbook. You have anything in the bank? No, he said, I don't even go to the bank. He said, but God will provide. And the father's really starting to feel sick. And so he asked the man, he says, well, look, he said, you know, we, I, you know, he's trying to give him a chance, every opportunity. So he says, hey, what about your dreams? Do you have any aspirations? Do you want to do something? With, what do you want to do with your life? He says, I don't know. He says, you don't have any dreams, any goals that you've set. We want our daughter to marry someone who wants to do something with their life. Is there something you're going to do with your life? He says, I don't know. He says, but guess what? And, of course, you know how that conversation ended. Young man leaves saying God will provide. The boy leaves. After the boy leaves, the girl's mother, man's wife, comes in. She's excited. She says, well, how did it go? The father's sitting there traumatized. He looks at her and he says, he says, I got bad news and I've got good news. And she says, well, what's the bad news? And so he tells her what happened, the three questions he asked and how the boy responded each time. And then the mother's looking traumatized. She's just sitting there stunned. Oh, no. What are we? Well, she said, what could possibly be any good news? He said, well, the father said the good news is this. He thinks I'm God. And sometimes you and I enter into relationships where we try to be God for someone else or someone is looking to us to be God for them to meet all of their needs. Or maybe you are looking to someone else to meet all of your needs. And why is that wrong? What is wrong with that? Well, in Exodus 20, verse 3, one of the Ten Commandments, the very first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, the very first step in spirituality, the very first step in being healthy and being what God made you to be is to recognize there is only one God, and you're not it. And no human being you know is God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Jesus quoted this perhaps more than any other verse, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
And so if I love God in that way, I can't be looking to someone else to meet all of my needs. Even in a marriage relationship, that is terribly unfair to think that your spouse is responsible to meet all your needs. God didn't give you your spouse to do that. One of the consequences of looking to someone that way, where they're going to meet all my needs or I'm trying to meet all of theirs, is we immediately fall into the trap of this God thing and, and we create some problems. The first one is idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is when I give my attention, my affection, and my worship to someone else other than God. I'm giving my attention and being attentive to someone else other than God. And when I'm in a relationship like that, I'm not listening to God anymore. I'm not necessarily doing what he wants me to do with my life. And the result of that is disobedience. And I begin to miss God. I begin to miss opportunities that he has for me. I begin to miss what he had in mind for me because I'm paying all of my attention and giving all of my energy to someone else. What's the answer? I believe the answer is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 and 5. Commonly misunderstood, but a great passage to help you and I understand this business that I can't meet all the needs that someone else has. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Got that? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, two verses later in verse 5, For each one shall bear his own load. Well, pastor, that sounds like that contradicts everything you just told us this morning. It sounds like you're saying that we're supposed to carry one another's burdens, so I'm carrying their burdens, and carry my own load. That I'm supposed to do both at the same time. And actually, that's what it appears, unless we understand there are two different words used there. Most translations draw that distinction. There's a word burden, and we're to share one another's burdens. And that word describes a boulder, an overwhelming load. Things that happen to you and me that are truly overwhelming. And we are called to step in and help each other in those circumstances. Uh, there may be a great financial disaster. You lose your job. You lose work. Your house burns down. We are called at that point to help bear burdens, boulders. That's a boulder. Your child gets sick. You have medical uh, diagnosis that is overwhelming. And you're dealing with an overwhelming situation. We are called to help bear one another's burdens in that circumstance. And so when people are carrying a load that no human being can possibly carry by themselves, yes, we are called to step in. But then he says each person is to bear their own load. And the word there describes uh, a necessary requirement, a necessary weight that, that you would use uh, for daily sustenance. It's a knapsack. And so what he's saying is that each person needs to carry their own knapsack. And, and it is your emotions, your dreams, your decisions, um, your basic human problems that every human being experiences. Uh, your calling in life is yours to determine. It's nobody else's. And so you have your basic backpack of needs and issues that everybody has to carry. 
The problem comes is when I start picking up other people's knapsacks. The responsibility is there to carry also. And I start trying to carry someone else's backpack and then someone else's backpack and someone else's backpack. And these are things they're responsible for, not you. And when I start trying to be their mind, to meet their needs at a level that only is possible with God, when I'm trying to solve all of their problems, I'm trying to meet every financial need, I'm trying to jump every time they need me to jump, I have crossed a line. Now I've got a problem. God never intended me to fix someone's emotions, to fix all of their financial needs, to fix everything that's going on in the world. We wouldn't need to pray if that was true. I wouldn't need to turn to God if that were true. So I need to stop trying to get my needs met, if I'm that kind of person, by carrying everybody else's load. And, um, and we need to be attentive to one another when they're overwhelmed. Number three, first steps to establish healthy boundaries. There's a new way to love. God didn't make you to meet all needs. Number three, Probably the most difficult of all if you're in this kind of relationship. Speak decisively when it's best to say no. I read a lady this week, she said no is a complete sentence. I mean, it works. You have to trust God to meet your needs. Not only your need to be needed, you have to trust God to take care of that. You have to trust God to meet their needs. Trust God to be actively at work in the life of your loved one. But you don't have to be the one that steps in and plays that role. Realize that you cannot make another person be dependable. You cannot make another person be responsible. You can't be the one who's still getting them up when they're 35 years old to go to work. Boy. Rest in God's sovereign control over all people, all events, all circumstances, and I cannot protect everybody from the consequences of their wrong choices or bad decisions. You may be thinking, well, pastor, are Christians allowed to say no? Are Christians really allowed to do that? I thought we were supposed to be kind and loving and helpful, and are, are we really allowed to say no? There was a circumstance where Jesus was teaching about oaths in the New Testament. Uh, an oath, people would swear by the temple, I, I'm, I'm going to do this, and I'm swearing by the temple, I'm swearing on the Bible, I'm swearing on this or that, I'm going to do it. And Jesus said, don't be that way. And this is what he says in Matthew 5, verse 37, let your yes be yes and your what? No, no. He didn't say it just once, did he? Can a Christian say no? Absolutely. I don't think we're stretching the context on that. Jesus said there is a possibility you could look at someone and say, no, I'm not going to do that today. There was a man, I was a friend of mine years ago, and he had a ministry to ex-offenders. Ex-offenders, people who had been released from prison or from jail, and they needed a leg up to get back into society, to get a job, to do whatever it was that they needed to do. And so he ministered to these people. And, and when someone called him, it didn't matter if 
if he was having dinner on a date night with his wife, whether he was having a family dinner with his kids at home. It didn't matter if he was on an outing with his son or daughter doing something that he had promised them for weeks that he was going to do. He dropped everything and took the call. He could not say no. And he desperately loved this ministry to a point that was not good, as Moses' father-in-law would say. And so he had to change, and he had to go in a different direction. You have to develop an awareness, and the Holy Spirit will help you do this, when you're crossing a line, a boundary that's in place, when you should respect your family, respect yourself, respect your spouse and the time that you have with them, that you can't drop everything and run just because someone calls. You can't drop everything and do someone else's will just because you have this unhealthy relationship with them. And you have to have a kind of sense that this is not right and that this is not going to help them and this is going to hurt me. In Proverbs 27, verse 12, the Bible says, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. He knows there's a problem. The simple pass on and what? And are punished. Are punished. You need to be able to say, that doesn't work for me. I mean, you don't have to be mean. You don't have to be unkind. That doesn't work for me. Or, I hear what you're asking me to do. I'd really like some time to pray about that first. It's not a cop-out. You're being sincere. I serve the Lord. I need to do what he tells me to do, and so I need some time to pray about that. And when you give an answer, if it's a no answer, just say, you know, I just don't believe that I can do that right now. I don't believe that would please the Lord for me to do that. I'm doing all that I can do at this present time for you. First steps to establishing healthy boundaries. I need to learn a new way to love. God did not make you to meet all needs. I need to learn to say no. And finally, number four, prioritize your spiritual growth. Make it a priority. Don't stop reading your Bible. And if you're not in a Bible study group, get into a Bible study group. Uh, Not all groups are perfect. You have all kinds of people in those groups, different kinds of people. Some are, you know, spiritually healthy. Others are still in process. They're growing. In the context of a Bible study group, you get to learn from other people. You get to watch how a mature Christian handles an immature situation. You get to see and learn and grow, and you're studying God's Word together, and you need to be feeding your spirit. You need to be continuing to develop and grow. God has called you. God has a path for you. God has a purpose for you that goes beyond this relationship that may be eating up all of your time and taking your life piece by piece. Memorize Scripture. I'm going to give you one here in a moment that may be helpful. Uh, Scripture has a way of rebuilding your emotions in a way that I cannot tell you with words. The truth of God's Word has the capacity to change you from the inside out. It's not magic. It is the Word of God. And And that same Word that created the heavens and the earth, when you and I take His Word into our lives, it has the possibility to create in us a new heart. Redirect your thoughts to the Lord throughout your day. Here's a scripture passage. Last one I want to share. Psalm 119, verse 35. It's a prayer. And if you're struggling with a relationship where everything is kind of bled together and 
You've lost yourself. You don't know where you end and they begin and so forth. Here's a passage of Scripture for you. Lead me in the path of your commandments. See, some of you are sitting here this morning and you are all bound up because of somebody else who wants you to do something when they want you to do it and you're always jumping for that. You need to be able to turn to the Lord and say, lead me in your commandments. For I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain, not just for what I can get out of these needy people around me and it feeds a need that I have. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Your ways. The bottom line is this. Saying yes to Jesus lets me say no to all the other forces that want to rule over me. As a human being, there's a battle over your soul that's occurring at this very moment. It occurs not only on Sunday morning, it occurs on Sunday night, Monday, Monday night, Tuesday, Tuesday night. There's this battle taking place. You have an enemy, and he wants to bind you up. He wants to get you so consumed and distracted from God and not thinking about him and not caring what he thinks or says. He wants to get you so bound up that you are finding yourself someday so far away from the Lord that you think, I can never come back. I have so messed up. I've so allowed my life to be ruled by something else or by someone else. And I haven't said no to anybody, but I haven't said yes to God lately either. And I desperately need this freedom that Jesus died to give to me. Freedom from worrying about what everyone else will say what everyone else will think. We're going to look at this a little bit more in depth soon as part of this series in a couple of weeks. And uh, one of the topics we're going to deal with is that you can't please everybody. And the truth is there's only one person that has to be happy with you. And when you discover that, it'll set you free and you'll be much more effective in loving people. May I ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes? In our time of response this morning, we're going to take a few moments to respond to what God has said to our heart. And so how did he speak to you? What, what, what is he saying to you? If you're a person, a dear one, who's struggling today with the expectations of others, and it hurts, and you don't feel like you can be free, I want to encourage you today to cry out to the Lord. And say, Lord Jesus, I just need your path. I need your commandments. I, I need your heart. I need to love people the way you love people, not the way I think I should. I need, to, I need to do what you're calling me to do, not what someone else is telling me to do. And I promise you that Jesus lives. We celebrated that on Easter just a few weeks ago. Jesus Christ lives. And because he lives, he can come into your heart, into your life, and he can fill you and give you a brand new outlook and set you free from the crushing weight of expectations that's hurting, killing you right now. So just trust in him and say, Lord, and sing in just a moment, I encourage you to cry out to the Lord. Truly put your trust in him and say, Lord, set me free. Take these first steps, begin to apply them.
If you need someone to pray with you or for you this morning, maybe you have a burden for somebody else, maybe there's something totally unrelated to this message and you just need someone to pray for you, the pastors are here, I'm here, we'd be glad to pray with you this morning. You can come and kneel at the altar and just take a few moments with the Lord and then go back to your seat if that's helpful to you. But as God has spoken, how will you respond? Do you need Christ? And you've hesitated to trust him and you know now's the time. Let me encourage you to do that publicly and say I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ today and I want you church to pray for me. Come see one of our pastors. Come talk to us. We'll guide you through that journey. We'll help you leave here today knowing your sins are forgiven with a new life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence here. Thank you, Lord, that in the very instant that we turn to you, you have already there and you are waiting. Thank you, Lord, that we're never for one moment out of your thoughts and out of your love for us and your care for us. Father, I pray that you would set dear ones free today who are calling on your name. That with compassion and grace and with the heart of Jesus, they would say no today when they need to say no. That they would begin to serve because you are leading them to serve. They would begin to do ministry out of a sense of calling and not obligation. And I pray that you would fill them with your Spirit's power and with the love of God. Set them free from this overwhelming weight that's tearing their life apart. Protect the marriages that are here today. Protect the homes that are represented here today. And all over when we pray in the churches that call on your name, the people would be set free today. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.